SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Come on, where do we put this thing? This ain't feathers, you know. I don't care where you put it. Find a place and you put it down. It's not oh, that this is going to work. Get your feet out of the fish tank, Michael. Get them out right now. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. They are unsurpassed at following the franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast, to a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi, and with me is Thrasher. One, two, three, hey, what the heck are we fighting for? We are talking about the uh, the second film of the American Graffiti duology, More American Graffiti, released six years after the original in 1979. This was directed by Bill L. Norton, who also wrote the script, uh, based on the character by George Lucas, Gloria Katz, and Howard Yuck, starring um, much the same cast as the original, Candy Clark, Bo Hopkins, Ron Howard, Paul Matt, Mackenzie, Fizzle, Mackenzie Phillips, who was not in the original, uh, Cindy Williams, but... However, it does not have Richard Dreyfuss, because he refused to be in this. Or um, Wolfman Jack. Uh, no, it does, but you have to... Um, his voice is in it. Oh, I think I think that uh, bypassed me somehow. Yeah, it's it's mixed pretty low into the mix. Uh, cinematography is by Caleb Deschanel, a famous cinematographer, who is the father of Zoe Deschanel. Oh. So there you go for that. Um, yeah. So this movie, even though George Lucas said this lost... A lot of money for him. It cost about like three million and made, eh, like around twenty million worldwide. So that's not terrible, but it's not like the hundred fifty plus million the original made. It's it's not Star Wars money. No, no, that's the other thing too. Is that if you compare everything to Star Wars, everything is going to be a disappointment when it comes to the the box office. And so I'm looking at this poster, which is not done by Mort Drucker, but it's in a. Uh, cartoon style nonetheless and it says the sight and sounds of the 60s there were bittersweet times there were crazy times and it all was unforgettable and it's it's okay so when they say 60s they mean 60s because this movie is spread over multiple years of the 60s this struck you know I, I looked up the original review for more American graffiti from Variety and I think this sentence, you can't sum it up better than this. More American Graffiti may be one of the most innovative and ambitious films the last five years, but by no means is it one of the most successful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny you mention that, because like the, the story is told in a very, uh, very unlinear way, the way it's broken up between three different New Year's Eves in three different years of the 60s. But also, they do some really amazing things where there's like the screen is broken off into sections, and we see simultaneous action from different points of view. Um, most of which, I gotta say, is successful. Uh, I, like it, I did not find that that made things harder to follow. It is so weird. It's like you you don't expect anyone to try to innovate in a sequel, but this movie is trying to innovate, but it doesn't always work. I mean, this this is almost a textbook ambitious failure. 
Yeah, which I think is more interesting than a boring sequel. Um, and what's what's really nuts is uh, this came out on uh, DVD, you know, way back in 2003, and it's been a pretty mediocre transfer. It came out in Blu-ray uh, in Europe in 2012. It only hit the United States on Blu-ray in June 2018. Huh, really? So this is never a movie in its release that came with any special features on the dick, on the I said almost said on the dick on the disc, and um, the trait one of the trailers for more American Graffiti is really worth looking up because Wolfman Jack narrates the trailer. I think I've seen that trailer, and it, it's pretty good, although a bit chaotic, sort of like the movie itself. And yeah, it's four consecutive stories, all set in New Year's Eve from 1964, 65, 66, and 67. And um, although Richard Dreyfus is missed here because his story is he's a writer that's in Canada, like. I don't it know works. what you could do to make that interesting. Yeah, it seems to work, and you have enough going on. And, and what's interesting is over the opening credits, you do see the helicopters in Vietnam and, and so forth. But then you, you see a scene that sort of opens with exactly what you think an American graffiti sequel would be, where it's on the drag race track. Paul Milner is, or not John, not Paul Milner, John Milner has uh, been going. Uh, to in the competitive drag racing circuit, and he's trying to move up to the minor leagues, as it were. And um, all his buddies from the first film, except for Richard Dreyfuss, are there to see him. And we see now that um, Laurie is pregnant with pos with the twins, as it turns out. And we see uh, Toad is ready to leave for Vietnam, and uh, you know they're all sort of going their their separate ways. But as as far as a way to introduce the film, like it's nice to see the characters in their old back together in one scene because you don't get that again. And they, they still have a lot of great chemistry with each other. And the other yes. nice thing about this yeah. scene is we get one last glimpse of Ron Howard without his bad mustache. Right. And this um, was, you know, one of the last major film roles Clint Howard did. He's done cameos and stuff before and, of course, he's known for narrating um, everything from, like, commercials to Arrested Development. So... I'm surprised he doesn't do more acting because he he did that so much as a child he just burned out on it. Well, that's one thing that th that both the previous American Graffiti and this did remind me. He can act. He knows how to act. It's it's interesting yeah. that he did transition so fully as into a into a director. Because even Clint Eastwood, you see, he'll act in his stuff every once in a while, and he's in his uh, 80s, still still doing a lot of interesting things. Um, so what makes this movie ambitious, not just that it keeps on flip-flopping between four storylines, each separated by a year, each in different locations, each focused on different characters, but it's also filmed in different aspect ratios, um, which must have been quite schizophrenic in a movie theater. It's pretty jarring seeing it in the uh, on the home screen, I think, didn't you? You know, it's funny. Like I, It kind of washed over me, and I think that's because... I watch so many different things in so many different formats uh, that my brain, like my brain, just kind of defaults. Like it, it made the transition easy for me. But but it, it it must be in a world where you're used to only two formats: big screen format and television screen format. That's got to be jarring. I would think so. I remember um, people complaining when The Dark Knight came out on Blu-ray because uh, some a few scenes were shot in IMAX. And when you get to those scenes in the movies, the aspect ratio changes from, uh, you know, what I think it's 2.35 to 1 to um, 1.78 to 1 or something, where it takes up most of the screen. 
So it's like your screen is kind of tiny, then it expands, and it's tiny again. But, uh, yeah, and the way it does this in this movie is, is artfully. But I guess we can talk about the, um, the different stories in general, what we think works, what we think doesn't work about them. Um, because the structure of this is originally how George Lucas wanted American Graffiti, the first one to be, where it shows a scene from this guy, and 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 it keeps repeating that same pattern over and over and over again. Yeah, it's funny. At first, I was very annoyed by that, but once I realized that the actual order of the stories does not truly matter, that, that all that anxiety kind of went away. Sure. Um, I You know, the, if you're looking for something, a sequel that feels like the original, you'll be the most satisfied by Milner's story. Well, it, it's almost a continua It's a direct continuation of where he left off in the previous film, because he's in this position where he, he still wants to prove himself as a, as a racer and a hot rod expert, but he feels that all of his victories are tainted because there was almost always a mitigating circumstance. Yeah, but he's also become a bit of a local celebrity as well. I mean, the original was in 62. His storyline is in New Year's Eve 64. And so he, he has enough of a... Uh, he has t-shirts with his logo on it, right? He, oh, yeah. he's, try, he's trying to get... There's a, a pretty good scene where he's trying to get picked up by a, a bigger company, but they only want to use him as like a grease monkey for a while to get um, his hours in. And he's he just sort of wants to be the Lone Ranger, do his own thing with his own crew... He's mixing up his own special, uh, highly flammable formula. And someone, in a, a friend, dumps some Cheetos in it. Oh, yeah, the old-fashioned Cheetos in the wax bag. Yeah, who could forget the wax bag? And uh, in his story, Amada, I mean, you do get some racing sequences, which are kind of neat, and you get to see the, the, the way the souped-up different cars look, how the drag racer things it remind. It's very much of what George Lucas does later in the pod race, I think, with the Phantom Menace. Although, granted, these drag races are short because it's a drag race. Oh yeah, it's 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 all it's all about it's all about a, uh, a burst of intense speed. speed, and then the parachutes right. come out, which is an part of the arc that happens. Is you know he he does he does win a race, but then his chute doesn't deploy, and his car uh, gets wrecked by going off the track and into a barn. And one thing that I really like about that is that is how quickly everyone rallies around him to the point where even his opponents in the other races come together to give them parts off of their car to repair his so he can still get in that, that last qualifying race and prove how good he is. Right, and we have uh, Anna Bjorn as um, the character of Eva. And I think this is a fascinating romance because it's a lot of dialogue in what turns out to be Icelandic, I think, or whatever they speak in Iceland. Yeah, she, she's she's from Iceland, but yeah, that's they, they have like a full relationship, and it's not subtitled. Understand each other. It's not subtitled. That's really ballsy. Um, I didn't try watching the movie with subtitles. That might have been an interesting idea, but but you know, she was a uh, a model, and she had uh, she was Miss Iceland in the Miss Universe competition in 1974. And she was voted Miss Amity by fellow contestants. And uh, she also had a small part in the cult film, The Sword and the Sorcerer. Oh, God, you have that that line of uh, Corman-esque... Oh, that was an Albert Payune film, of course. Those, was, like, yes. those cheapy sword and sandals movies. The gratuitous of course. Movie. But, um, you know, since then, she's... 
done some documentary filmmaking. She's become a certified yoga uh, yoga instructor, and then now she does uh, freelance graphic design. Oh, cool! So it said quite the interesting career. And in fact, she um, it was later revealed that she gave the FBI info that led to the capture of Whitey Bulger. Really? How did she come by that? Uh, you know, the the news story that makes this claim is very um, light on details. But maybe when she does a memoir, who knows? But, I mean, even for being a model, and she's quite pretty, her acting is very good, and, and talking in her native language, it's, um, you're about as puzzled as he is, but you get the gist enough, and there's... You know, a scene where he takes her into... That's rapey in this one, where he takes her into his van and then tries to make a move on her. And um, she pushes him away, and then it's... You know, in some ways, the romantic story is typical, but again, it's not, because he doesn't find someone that can translate her, more or less, until the very end of it. Of his storyline, right? Yeah. And then we got The Toad in the Vietnam... And Which is like so, Apocalypse Now, the sitcom, sort of. Yeah, it's like they, they play, like, it's... Because it begins, he, he wants to get out of the war, uh, and it begins, we are introduced to him, he's in the jungle outside of his, his base camp, and he's rigged up he's rigged up a rifle to a tree with its trigger attached to a string, and he's going to try to give himself a wound that'll get him, set, that'll get him sent home. And Which that was a real thing. People did that quite a lot. Oh no, no, it it, it is a real yeah. thing. There there are a lot of there are a lot of ways that people try to get out of the war, and it's just that it's played, it's played. I feel too much like a comedy. Uh huh. Like, like the, and, and I'm not opposed to someone doing like a comedy like that about Vietnam, about a bunch of guys all trying to get injured so they can get out of the war. But it's played. It's it doesn't jive well with the tone of the original film and with the tone of the rest of this movie because it really is done as broad comedy to the point where when he pulls the trigger and the rope breaks, there's a doing sound effect. Yeah, and this is a brilliant idea, but the execution is way off. I feel like what they should have done is they should have made him seem a little bit more desperate. Yeah, build up to that instead of start with it. However. It, it is a nice touch, I think, in A, these scenes are filmed in full screen on 16mm, looked like news footage, so it looks really grainy and, and makes it feel a bit authentic in that way, and B, um, you get uh, the leader of the Pharaohs comes as uh, it ends up being a sort of friend on the battlefield. Yeah, and it's, it's nice to see them. Yeah, and it's nice to see these characters who didn't meet in the original, as far as we know, um, have make kind of a relationship and realize, oh, we're from the same hometown, blah, blah, blah. What I love that, like, he, even the guy from the Pharaohs talks about how when he goes home, he's going to hook back up with the other Pharaohs. They're going to start, uh, they're going to start a used car. They're going to work with him to start a used car lot. They'll steal cars and he'll sell them. Yeah, it's, that feels more like the original. Um, I, I, I mean, okay, I want to see that guy's movie where right. it's all about him doing, like, trying to get stuff over on people during the war. On the other hand, you get um, a lot of, like you said, very broad comedy with there's a, a U.S. senator visiting their army base, chatting up with the, their, you know, captain or general uh, on scene who assigns the toad to uh, latrine duty and to and get his revenge he does some Bugs Bunny style shenanigans 
Yeah, and they don't and they don't hold back. I mean that that is that is the way you do a jungle a jungle latrine. They don't skimp on the details. No, I mean lifting the uh, the barrel full of shit. I mean to clean it and yeah, you, you fill you got to pour in diesel fuel. You got to burn it off. Burn it off, back. right? And then you'd have to. I mean, I, I was hearing stories of even in uh, Iraq. Um, People still having to do this the same way to to the same degree, but then you have the problem with the increased heat, and so yep, someone has to keep on stirring the stuff as it burns off, otherwise it'll solidify. Oh, uh, it's a lot of create you know a lot of things you you sort of take for granted. But um, yeah, the Vietnam stuff I think it's cool. You get all the you get all the helicopter shots and uh, the music is great. I mean, I found I like the music in this film possibly more than American Graffiti. But that's probably because I recognize more of it. Well, they didn't. They didn't go with a lot of the stereotypical. Let's establish that it's the '60s sort of songs. Yeah, they didn't do "Fortunate Son," <laughs> which is in every other. Or Vietnam. the Watchtower, or Age of Aquarius. Yes. Or all the leaves are brown. Whatever the hell that song is. Oh. And now that one stuck in my head. Yeah. Um, then you get something that I felt, it was an interesting storyline, and it starts at a really raw place, because at the beginning you see the young version of Steve and Laurie, uh, played by Ron Howard and um, Cindy Williams, as they're, they're a happy couple, the wife is pregnant, they're expecting kids, and now this, they're you know like four years into it, and their marriage is like on the brink of a divorce, like she's like breaking all his plates, like... I didn't think that was really comedic, really. Like, you feel bad for both of them, really. But I think that's the thing. I feel like they're trying to, with with the petty way that they're breaking the that they're breaking the dishes. This is another thing where, like, the, it like the tone doesn't quite work. Because I feel like I feel like I feel like either the director or the writer thought this was funny, and then the other thought it was drama, and that those two things were clashing. Because, like, it's, again, it's a very real, it's a very real argument that they're having, you know, because, like, the, you know, the, the workplace was changing, the women's liberation movement and the sexual revolution is in full swing, and that's, that's the whole core of the argument, is that, is that she wants, she wants to be able to leave the home and have a job. She wants to feel like she has a, a greater purpose, and she wants to be part of what makes their living. Uh, and and he's against that, and that's the source of their argument. The only thing that works in in this scene, because it's grown to the point where they're just smashing dishes, is that you can tell that this is an argument that they've had many times before. Yeah. It's not the new... And she kind of, the wife, uh, said, I've had enough, I'm leaving. And she lives with her younger brother, who has a big picture of Stalit by his dorb, in his dorb. And, well, he's uh, a big part of the student protest movement. Student right. protest movement. So they get caught up in the student protest, and uh, he has to, you know, the husband comes to try and rescue the wife, and they all get caught up in the... I think the sequence, you know, is pretty exciting, where the cops go on campus, and they try to get away. Oh yeah, there, there's some tension there, uh, and, and it is kind of appropriately brutal because there's the there's the guy, there's uh, her brothers. So this is the thing: the 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 short guy who lives with her brother. Do you think that's just his best friend, or do you think they're a couple? I could see the couple angle. I didn't think about that, but you could be right. That that was just like they, they don't really, they don't really like. 
put any bows on it, but I do I do feel like we are supposed to take in that that her brother and this other man are a couple. Yeah, sure, I, I could see that. But like when he gets hit on the head with a police baton and like whips around with blood all over his face, that's almost a cartoonish amount of blood, but it is appropriately shocking and brutal. Yeah, that's an effective reveal. I really like the scene where the the wife is on the bus with all the other women, and they do the uh, they do that song in unison. Oh yeah, there are these two there are these uh, two young African American women who are singing "Baby Love," and the uh -huh. the matron uh, from the police is like demanding that they stop singing, and she goes back and and, and like I like like hits one of the girls, and then yeah, Debbie starts singing "Baby Love" and gets the whole bus to join in. And it's just it's just something that the police can't handle. They can't handle a group of people peacefully singing. I, I, I love I love that kind of rebellion against an arbitrary authority. It's a nice moment. I think um, this storyline is a bit weak. Uh, I like that there's some reconciliation at the end, but well, I felt bad for their kids. You know that's true. The kids just kind of get foisted away from the story. <laughs> they're they're monstrous children, by the way. They are with that, and, and that's kind. Of, I thought that was a comedy moment in that storyline that worked, where uh, they're coming to bring a nice sculpture for the New Year's Eve party, and it came early. And meanwhile, one of the kids is like, he puts his butt in the uh, aquarium. Well, he completely crawls into the fish tank and starts picking up the fish and throwing them on the floor. Yeah, it's. But I mean, but that story does get resolved because after you know, uh, after. After Ron and uh, Ron and Debbie get chased through the campus and, and do manage to get out, and I love the way the way Ron breaks into the campus after the police have it cordoned off. Is that he just he, he uses his weight as an insurance salesman, claiming to be an adjuster for the school's insurance company, and he needs to be on site to do an assessment, which works pretty well. But like, I mean, it does like. I like that he finds newfound respect for his wife, and I and I like that he has that turn. That yeah, yeah, you can go, and you, you, you if you want a job, you should get a job. Um, I, I, I kind of wish they didn't have to go through hell to get to that point, but I'm glad that's the point that they get to. Right. Um, Although I guess that and you know what that I think that's what it is. He's the only character in that story that has an arc. His wife doesn't. His, she just gets what she wants, despite the fact that when she's talking with her brother, they do have several really interesting back and forths talking about why she is for and he is against the war. I feel like she should have had some sort of transformation along those lines. Like she should have, she should have had, come out with some more sympathy for her brother. And then you have the story about uh, Debbie, who in the last film and in the beginning of this film has the blonde beehive cut but presumably I guess it's after she has learned that the toad is MIA or presumed dead oh yeah yeah well I think they even mentioned that she she mentions that she has a hard time on New Year's Eve because some because two good friends of hers died on it right one of is Milner being killed by the drunk driver but like we're introduced to her, and she has this like you know she has this this like sort of shitbag boyfriend, and they're doing drugs in the car, and they're going to get pulled over by a cop. So they're trying, so he's they're trying to eat all the drugs, and the cop is Officer Falfa. Yeah, that's a nice turn from Harrison Ford. It was a cameo I did not expect. I did not no. expect to see Harrison Ford in this film at all. But it kind of makes sense that that it makes sense. The guy who was an asshole in '62. 
uh, comes back as an asshole as a bike cop. And Debbie's storyline, uh, as you hinted at, they do a lot of picture-in-picture effects, which I think are done pretty well. Like, you have to, it can be a bit fatiguing. You have to train your eye to look at the different panels, but they might even, you know, at one point they show the van driving, and then on the other panel it's the van driving just flipped, so everything's backwards. Yeah, what I think the most successful of those multiple shots was when one shot was an establishing shot running parallel to a close-up dialogue. Like, for instance, she's working she's working at a strip club, and there's this thing where, like, we have an establishing shot of the go-go dancers on the stage while she's talking to her boss. And this and this is something that I kind of that I like about her story is that she's being exploited on all sides. She's being exploited by her boyfriend. She's being exploited by her boss at the strip club. Uh, and she doesn't really know that's what's happening. She sort of, she sort of, kind of believes that she has been liberated in this way. But by, by the end of the movie, she has, or the end of her story, she has well and truly become her own woman. I was really, of all the stories in this film, I feel like I was the most satisfied by her. And you know, she goes to this fake band called Electric Haze, thinking like, oh, if I talk to them and uh, if they need a guitarist, my shipbag boyfriend can take that part, but she ends up in their van and then the, the door closes behind her so she's stuck with them on the road and uh, she has fun with it, I think. Yeah, like she she really does become like <coughs> one, one of the equals in the band and I love that it signals like a turn for her where, because they go to this country western dive bar and uh like to get to get her in to get to get her in like oh well, we just tell her you're in the band but I don't play an instrument here's a tambourine you can play this and like how just that one sort of like that act of desperation to sneak her into the into the venue like while she's trying to get her boyfriend a job on the band like she she discovers she has an untapped musical talent realizes her boyfriend's a shitbird because he's cheating on her with another woman so you know and then it, and she. Do you want to save the epilogue to the end? We can save save the epilogue to the end, yeah. But um, but I love I love that at in that moment, you no, know, there's a whole turning point in her life that you know that you know she she becomes she becomes her own woman. She becomes an equal part of this band, and you know it it signals it signals that she's going to go on and she's gonna you know through through the art of her music is gonna have have a life of her own. Yeah, and you you get some fun moments with the. One of the band members just keeps talking nonstop, like he's on crack the whole time. Oh, their guitar player, yeah, the he guitar keeps running at the mouth, and she keeps trying to like cut in. <laughs> One point, she just puts the mouth over his hand. Um, you get some, you get a pretty good bar fight that breaks out in the country western bar near the end, and uh, you get a crazy sequence where the I guess the driver is, is high or is that the joke where he keeps on crashing into stuff well there's a running gag in their band where when they're in the van they'll say hey hey Gary don't drive through that park and he swerves and drives to the park don't hit those trash cans and and that's kind of the that's the big signal that she's sort of become who she's going to be is when they're leaving that that dive bar and he's like, but I guess I got only one thing to say hey Gary don't hit those trash cans and on the one hand, like that's a great moment to watch. I love the camaraderie with the bands. I can't help but feeling so- sad for the person who's going to have to clean over, clean up those trash cans. That's true. And then you you look and you see, um, like these stories individually have things that are good and bad about them. I agree that the Debbie story in San Francisco is more successful, but the way they all end, I think, just feels very. 
disjointed. Well, I, I feel like because it because it all ends with like with you know people singing "Old Lang Syne" on New Year's, and they try to use that as a unifying thing, but they're so separated from each other by both geographically and in terms of time, it doesn't quite work. But the thing that I love, although I do I do love, and this this changes this recontextualizes what we see in the epilogue of the first film, is that Toad fakes his own death, and that's how yeah. he gets out of the war. He he rigs a bomb in the latrine. He's got he's purposefully gotten the commanding officer angry at him to give him on extra give him extra latrine duty. Hides a bomb in the latrine, makes it look like the Viet Cong blew it up while he's inside, while also showering his commanding officer and the senator with shit. And they think he's a hero for dying in the line of duty, even while it's happening. And then he sneaks. And then he snuck away, and he's like, he's in, he's you know, on a road in in civilian clothes, singing "Old Lang Syne," making his way back to civilization, and like that's the only thing that I kind of feel like is missing is since we now know, like missing and presumed dead, so he didn't die in the war. So I have to wonder, did he die while trying to make it back to the United States? Because I feel like if he's alive. I want to see him meet back up with at least one of the other characters. Wow, yeah. I mean, admittedly, that probably can't happen until... Oh, wait a minute, no! Because in the... In, the, in, in, in her, uh, her section, they, they do mention the amnesty that was declared on draft dodgers. Surely he'd be able to... Well, I guess he's not a draft dodger. He's, he's a deserter, a, which is he's worse. A he's a deserter. Yeah. Um, so I guess he's living in an underground. I just I just wish... It would do my heart good to know that at least one of the other characters knows he's alive. Maybe he goes up to Canada and meets up with Kurt, who's now a famous writer. That would be... I could see that. And, and of course, that's the other thing, is that uh, is that Milner... We end with Milner driving home alone in, in a car, and there's another car coming towards him on the road, but we never see them cross, the implication being that he's going to die in just a few seconds. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty subtle way to do that. Um... Also, you know, the end of uh, Debbie's story is kind of like the bar fight and her performing on stage, and it's just kind of chaos. And then Steve and Laurie, they sort of um, reconcile with uh, her wanting to do a job and him thinking a wife should just stay at home and raise the family, and they work that out. And so much like the first film, we end with kind of the postscript. Yeah, and where, you know, his uh, his wife has gone on to, like, work for a non-profit uh, is it, uh, is it Debbie? Is Debbie has become a successful a successful country musician? Yep. And, and it's kind of, it's kind of nice. Like I, I I liked it again. Their lives continue to go on. Right. Um, yeah. This movie is very interesting. You feel mixed on it. You know, both times I've watched it in the Vietnam section, I thought Toad's plan was going to be to put a bomb in the cake and have it kill the general and the senator. No, they they really, 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 they really they they really leave you hanging. They 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 make it seem like there is something up with the cake. Although I, th- although I think he maybe baked shit into the cake because he makes such of a meal out of it. Could be, yeah. And doesn't he say like they put a little something extra in there for you? He did. He did. So you're right. That could be the cake because they do draw out when the cake is cut. They're about to cut it, and then I think that's pretty funny. And they're like, "Oh, wait a second, we need to get a bigger knife." Oh, the honor is yours, sir. Yeah, yeah. So we're both gonna hold the knife together. 
Yeah, I, th- I think I think we can only presume that he put shit from the latrine in the cake. Ugh, yeah, I think you're right. Um, okay, so should I give the sequel yes or sequel no? I don't know. This is really hard. I feel so conflicted about this movie, and yet I admire its ambition. And when, I think... When, the, when we went into it, I was pretty sure I was going to say sequel no. I'm going to give it a sequel yes. I enjoyed the experimentation. I liked the characters. I liked this movie just enough that I would love to see what another director and writer could do with these characters a little further in the future. Yeah, I, I'll give it a sequel yes on Closer Thought. I think it, it's it's ambitious. It does a whole lot. Um, <coughs> it doesn't go where you think it's going to go in, in some ways, and um, I think it's definitely darker than the original. Uh, and, yeah, it's really... Um, the characters all feel like the characters in the original, which is a hard thing to do in a sequel. So, but still, Richard Dreyfuss is sorely missed. Although I, I keep thinking, like, what would his story be? Him on a typewriter alone in Canada, or maybe doing a book tour. Oh, you could do the book tour and different jokes at the different cities. That's true. At the end, he goes to San Francisco or wherever they're living. Yeah. Um, all right. So, I for uh, my pitch a sequel. I will do even more American Graffiti. <laughs> the next chapter. That's right. This will take place in the uh, in the 90s, so they're, they're grandparents, and it's about their kids having wild adventures. <coughs> and at some point, they realize their kids are up to no good, so all the old grandparents that are alive get together in a car to get out to hunt down their kids and drag them back home. <laughs> And so they finally become more active towards the end. and It would um, take place in the 90s. You would have a, a humorous episode in Waco, Texas. Oh, my God. <laughs> you would... Um, I, I would bring uh, the Toad back. I, w- I would do something with him. I think you would maybe do what I said and have a meet-up with Richard Dreyfus in Canada. And uh, maybe he like buys a, listens on the radio and says, "Oh, this this number's pretty good." And then he realizes is it's from his ex girlfriend. <laughs> and he and he and he, he calls in or something to when she's on a radio show and tries to do something with that. So yeah, it'd be called even more American graffiti. And then you have jokes about cell phones and technologies as well. So. So I want to do uh, American Graffiti Homecoming, and okay. and I want to do something with the Toad as well. So this is going to take place. It's going to take place on the tenth, the ten year anniversary uh, of Toad's supposed death. And a lot of the characters have come back together to have kind of a get together to reminisce. You know, they they're all getting on in years, but at the height of all of this, the Toad shows up. And turn, it turns out that there's like a... And I don't know if this is true, but for the purpose of the movie, it's true. There's a statute of limitations on when you, uh, about, of, uh, when you can be tried for being a deserter. And that statute of limitations has, has crossed. So the Toad comes back to his hometown. It turns out he's been traveling the world for ten years. He's, a, <coughs> he's, he's this kind of wise... He's older and wiser, uh, much more sure of himself. And the short of it is, you know... Th- everyone's like well what have you been doing and they all we all get little snapshot vignettes from everybody's life really like short films it's all short films 
one tiny short film for each surviving character about sort of what's the most significant thing that's happened in their life since the second film and what brought them to this uh, what they thought was a memorial service but then turns out to be a celebration because the toad is alive the toad is alive wow okay so pretty cool um, so I think I got a question for you Thrasher what's that question what you watching you know, it's funny, uh, I have not watched anything. I've been reading screenplays. Oh, what's a good one you've read re- lately? So I picked up uh, Dream Songs Volume 2, which is this uh, George R. R. Martin retrospective. Uh, and a lot of, and there's examples of a lot of his television and film writing in this book. And so uh, I recently read the original draft of the pilot for the George R. R. Martin science fiction series Doorways. Now, a pilot was filmed but it was based on a heavily revised script that uh, Martin was not satisfied with. Mm. Although I think you can find this on YouTube. So uh, so in this collection, it has his original script as he originally intended the show to, to open. And it really is a fascinating piece of writing. It, it suggests a whole alternate world where this, this could have become a long-running show and this might be what he was remembered for, as opposed to uh, Game of Thrones. Okay. And it's Sliders before Sliders. It's a show it's a show about a doctor and an escaped prisoner from a parallel universe leaping from world to world, staying one step ahead of the enforcers of these creatures that that have been conquering different parallel earths. Alright. And it, it has a lot of really interesting strangeness, a lot of wonderful world building. I mean, it it could have been something like I, I have a I have a hunch it's going to be like Gene Roddenberry when George R R Martin dies, someone's going to dig up this script and it is going to become a show. Yeah, I've heard with Game of Thrones they want to do all sorts of um, prequel series or something. So, uh, yes, I believe there we'll is see. a prequel series in the work. We'll see because they they have one more season, but it's only six episodes, um, not until twenty nineteen. So. Okay. I've been reading something as well. I've been busy watching uh, movies for the show, but I've, I've been sort of intrigued by the uh, success of the shark movie Meg, or The Meg, based on the novel Meg by Steve Alton, and I decided to read a novella he did called Meg Origins. It's kind of a prequel. And um, it's okay. I would describe it as like Michael Crichton, but with more sex jokes. <laughs> so he does get into like the the history of the megalodon, which is kind of interesting and uh, sort of a parallel storylines between people that are they're trying to get like samples from the shark, and this guy's doing a deep sea dive for something unrelated, and they all run into the shark, and they're trying to get it to move around. It's it's interesting, but it makes me question why you'd have Jason Statham in a role like that. So I'm presuming they cut down his dialogue a lot in the film. But I don't know. So I thought it was just, okay, I wouldn't mind reading something else by Steve Alton. I've certainly read worse. He has one that looks wacky called Shark Man, about a paralyzed teen injects himself with an experimental shark stem cell elixir to repair his spinal cord, (laughs) only to find himself progressively evolving into a predator. So is... (laughs) So is Steve Alton just an author who specializes in sharks, trashy shark novels? Um, mainly. He's also done one about the Loch Ness Monster called The Loch. And he did one that um, 
<laughs> this looks ridiculous. Goliath. A futuristic nu nuclear stealth submarine is hijacked by terrorists, unaware that the sub's biomechanical brain has become cognizant. <laughs> wow. But yeah, mainly like underwater thrillers. Uh, I, I tried to look up, you know, more information on this guy, and he was obsessed with Jaws as a kid, which makes sense. And he has like a doctorate in sports medicine. So it's um, and he was fortunate to have Meg come out. The original book came out around the same time as the Jurassic Park movie, and a uh, so it, it's definitely fitting that Michael Crichton, you know, science meets action formula. And the I think the the headline for the review in the L.A. Times was Jurassic Shark, <laughs> which probably helped his sales quite some bit. But he does do a cool program called Adopt an Author that he does with some other authors where. I guess if you have, you know, books that encourage people to read that normally normally wouldn't read, this allows um, curriculums and teachers to get the books at a great discount. And I believe they include some of his books, which admittedly, you know, you reading is good. You can you can encourage people to read and still you know still still make a buck or two. I guess that's all right. Yeah, and you know, reading a, a Meg Shark book, I think is probably more interesting than reading, say, The Dangerous Game. Or I don't know Dickens. I mean, if you're trying to re if you're trying to get into reading, you want something that's a little more contemporary, probably. Yeah, you know, strangely enough, Dickens was the only required reading that I liked. I really, really enjoyed Dickens. Oh, and Hemingway, his short stories, not his novels. Hmm. Yeah, I liked uh, I liked Dickens. I liked, but I, I was always a reader from when I was young. I I wouldn't mind rereading the Hugh Lofting Doctor Doolittle stories. I don't know if those hold up as well. A lot of British children's literature now is younger. That's neither here nor there. So we we got a scene to do. And what we picked was a scene between Job Milner and Toad. And it's sort of at the very beginning where the, the game is back together. Oh, yes, before he ships out. To before he ships out, yep. So who do you want to play? Oh, gosh. Can I do uh, Milner? Great. As much as I like the Toad, I feel like I'd probably do a better yeah. performance as Milner. Okay. Uh, hey, hey, look, I want you to keep this. Take this with you. Hands Toad a twisted bolt. That's from uh, when my flywheel broke, remember? That's great, man. That's really great. Hey, you know what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to capture your VC flag. <laughs> no, no, don't, don't do that, man. Just, just come back alive. Yeah, that, you know, that's a nice, brief, earnest scene right there. Yeah. So before we close out the show, what are we going to cover next time? You know, I'm not sure. Uh... So, looking at our uh, SQL-O-Rama database, beep -boop, beep -boop. Uh, I'm going to pull something up. Is that? I think that has been a convenient way to look at things, don't you? Oh, indeed, indeed. Indeed, and I have much, much more to add to it. And, and I must apologize for not giving uh, the next series as, as much thought as I had planned. I've, ju I've just come off of the one-two punch, the one-two-three punch of Origins, Gen Con, and uh, Kentokyo Con. <laughs> that is uh, quite a lot of cons. Oh, but I uh, am under contract to do a book. Uh, can't give any details now. But oh, I'm that's very, great. I am suddenly busier than I've ever been in my professional life, and I'm loving it. I can't okay. wait to share more details. Congratulations. Um, 
So, why don't we do, do you feel like something big or something small? Uh, here, this will be a good one. The next thing we'll cover will be the Expendables trilogy. Alright! Expendables, Expendables 2, Expendables 3, Expendables 4 is in the works. Terry Crews is not going to be in Expendables 4 because Sylvester Stallone's agent uh, apparently molested him at a party while drunk. Shit. Yep. And, but Terry Crews, even though his wife was right there next to him while it was happening, the guy just, you know, you know, groped his privates and just sort of says, like, he just was making comments about black guys' privates. Just, you know, you can imagine that you can fill in the blanks. But there's a lawsuit going on about that. But Terry Crews is so upset about that, understandably, that he's not going to work with Stallone anytime soon, even though he likes Stallone. Yeah, it just, it just goes to show you agents are scum. He does, and he reported the incident, and nothing happened. Oh, that sucks. So even with the stuff nowadays, I think he's was one of the examples of... Um, I mean, this kind of stuff happens to women much, much, much more than men, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen to men either. And he actually went to uh, speak to, I don't know, some, some senators or some committee about it. And it's really, I, I urge you, this is not related to American graffiti, but I'm going to stick this in here. I'll, I'll urge you to, to watch that clip. Because one of the, the senators, if, if it's not a senator, it could be a judge, I don't quite remember, was asking him, well, you're a big, strong black man, why didn't you, why didn't you punch him? And he has to explain what happens if you're a black guy and you hit someone in the public. You're more likely to be arrested. All this other stuff can happen. It's uh, really quite a good. Um, it's it's, it's a harsh testimony, but it's it's one it, it that is. can be made. No, it, it is. And if you haven't seen it, uh, I recommend you do. Um, so we'll be doing Expendables one, two, and three next. As far as when the episodes will go on, I'm not sure. I am getting some uh, throat surgery to uh, reduce mucus droppings and get better get better REM sleep which I don't think I've ever really had in my whole life so it should be a big improvement to quality of life I might even gain the ability to smell again but recovery is going to be rough so if you don't have episodes for a little bit that's why and I'll try to record an audio commentary or something. Just yeah, yeah, that'd, that'd be good just to fill something in if we need it. So, till next time for Sequel Cast 2, uh, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Same. Hey, Barry, don't drive through that park! <laughs>